This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, we are kicking off the fifth um, season of WealthFest, the Weekly Bull and Bear. We have Jonathan Golub with us today. He's Managing Director and Chief U.S. Equity Strategist for Credit Suisse. Uh, to kick us off, I'd just like to kind of talk about, I mean, what sectors have performed well in this half of the year? Uh, what do you perform, you know, see performing well in the second half? Also, we have a big earnings week uh, this week. We got Netflix, Coca-Cola, Twitter, Intel, um, all reporting earnings. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. All right, great. Well, let me let me actually step back and maybe frame um, the world the way I see it. Um, the second quarter, the one that just completed and we're seeing their earnings reported yet, um, will prove to be the fastest of this recovery cycle. And matter of fact, it's the fastest since 1952. And um, you know, if you're a history buff, that means not since the Marshall Plan have we had a, an economy growing as fast as it did in the second quarter. Um, EPS right now is is forecasted just to, to your question um, right now at about um, 66%. Um, but the numbers are beating by such an outlandish number, um, like, like they're beating by about 20% that it's it, that if you actually assume continued beats um, will likely to be at 80% or more. Um, again, th- these are eye popping numbers that, that happen once in, in kind of a, a generation. And then the, Maybe the really the, the bigger story here is that we've collectively, and when I say we, you know, financial professionals and government officials and people at the Fed, but all of us, at how incredibly difficult it is to reopen an economy. We, we knew it's easy to close one, and we know what's going to happen if you, you do. You're going people are going to lose their jobs and things like that. But it's very difficult to put people back to work. Um, it's very difficult to, uh, to to get machinery back up and running. I have a car in my garage that I, I turned off a, a little over a year ago, and it doesn't turn over right now. So it's it's the same for the rest of the economy. Um, with respect to market returns, and again, before getting into the, the some of the numbers, um, I just want to maybe highlight the fact that the S&P 500 over the last 12 months has moved um, almost exactly within like a, a, a tiny percentage of where the earnings moved. And so the market's up, you know, well over 40% over last year, and yet stock multiples are exactly in line today to where they were a year ago. So stocks are not getting more expensive. It's just that we've had this explosion in earnings and and that makes this incredibly healthy. Um, and then one last uh, quick thought, again, before we get into some of the kind of the, what's been working best and not, but. Um, markets don't work in very, you know, kind of nice, clean time periods. You know, they, they don't necessarily say, oh, it's the beginning of the year, let me change direction. And so the real run that we've had in this market started with the Pfizer announcement that there was going to be a vaccine and this thing was coming to an end in terms of the, the uh, pandemic. And that happened at the beginning of November of uh, 2020. And the trends we're seeing right now are roughly speaking running into um, the beginning of the second half of the year. So anyway, for, for that, with that all said, uh, year to date, um, it's financials and cyclicals um, that are that are leading the pack. And when I say cyclicals, I'm talking there 
energy, materials, industrials, brick and mortar retail, all that kind of good stuff. And tech is roughly, and when I say tech, I'm defining it broadly to include the Googles and the Facebooks and the like, even though they're not necessarily categorized as tech, they may be in communications or or uh, discretionary, but but that broad tech basket is more or less in line with the general market and a non-cyclical stuff uh, like um, um, consumer staples and utilities and, and even healthcare. That's that's lagging, and so it's kind of on a year-to-date basis has been a big fat risk on trade. Um, value and small caps are handily meeting, uh, beating everything else. And even though this was a pretty big surprise to me, EFA and emerging markets are lagging in the U.S. is winning. And the reason I say that it's a surprise to me is because they typically do um, well in a in a value kind of environment. Now, in the last three months, in the second quarter, a lot of this is reversed. Um, technology has taken the lead and cyclicals have underperformed um, and growth is now beating value. And that's really gone on since... Um, March 31st, um, when interest rates um, changed directions and started coming down. So um, the, the markets, at, you know, as we're speaking, is, is, is a bit in flux. Um, it, between now and the end of the year, especially now that rates are lower, I think that we're, we're going to see rates probably drift a bit higher. We're going to see the economy continue to be good. I think that the value trade that worked in the first part of this year is going to come back full force. Um, I do think the one difference is I think that non-U.S. is going to um, is going to actually do pretty well, but it's going to be financials, cyclical sectors, energy, materials, industrials, and tech plus, I think, will again be a market performer. We'll, we'll perform quite well, but in line with the broad market, and I think you want to avoid those kind of defensive shares. So um, a lot a lot going on in terms of what's been winning and why. Yeah, so you're kind of mentioning, you know, the, the moves within when we're looking at growth and value uh especially now uh was that something you know that to be expected especially that par for the course really when we're looking at the stage of the recovery no it's actually not expected at all because if you take a look at the growth value trade i mean let me, let me just kind of you know like dig into this for a little bit you know um value stocks normally trade at about five p points five multiple points below growth and they're trading at about 10 below so they're really cheap they're growing substantially faster. Um, I think in the second quarter, they're, they're growing like 70% faster. Um, value stocks are growing faster than growth stocks. The value stocks are surprising by about a nine or 10% more than growth stocks. So they're, they're delivering better results. So on a fundamental basis, the market is screaming that you need to buy value. Um, the problem is, is that when interest rates are um, rising, that tends to help value companies. When interest rates are falling, it tends to help growth companies. And really, it, in, right about the end of the first quarter, you had this shift in interest rates. So you have this really interesting battle between the interest rate environment and the fundamentals. The fundamentals are screaming to buy value. The interest rates in you know so far in the last three plus months have been favoring uh, a rotation to growth. But if you want to, if you're making a bet that growth is going to win, you're probably making a bet that interest rates are going to be flat down. And, you know, I think that, that, that the odds of that are probably less than 50, 50. 
And if we think about one of the biggest topics that I think you hear at every single summer barbecue right now is inflation. So in June, we saw it at the fastest pace in nearly 13 years. The consumer price index was up a little over 5% from a year ago, which was the largest jump since August. What do, what should we take from the current inflationary environment in your mind? Yeah, no, first of all, it, it, it's a great question and you're right. I mean, you know, school kids are hearing their parents talking about inflation at the dinner table. I mean, it, 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 it's a big, it's a big issue when it's, it's absolutely everywhere. I, the, I think the first thing that we make a, a collective mistake again is that there's, there's two parts of this. One is a base effect. So you talk about 5% number, you know, 5% plus inflation. Um, and we're, and we could say, well, that was because last year was very depressed and you have these base effects. And we know that there's been a pickup in inflation, but it's kind of this comparison to last year. Um, but that, that's true. But in reality, the near-term pickup inflation is is really strong. And you can you can get the data either like year over year, or you can say how much is you know June bigger than May, bigger than April, and the month over month numbers are just running at really high numbers. So I'll just kind of read them out to you, but like. In the last um, month, you know, the, the month of June ran 90 basis points above where it was in May, and, and May was 60 basis points above where it was in April, and April was 80 basis points above where it was uh, the prior month. Now, why you know, those don't sound like a lot, 80 basis points, 60 basis points, but if you, if you annualize those numbers, if you take a look just even at the average of the last four months, and you annualize that, we're running inflation at, at about 9%. And you know, we haven't seen anything that even resembles this since the 19, uh, you know, since the 1970s. But in 1970s, it was an oil shock, it was a supply shock that was driving uh, some of that or a large part of that inflation. Um, and for the older people who are listening, they may remember gas lines, but this is not a supply shock. This is kind of a demand shock. This is a, you know, like demand is going through the roof and we, have the, we don't have the ability to fulfill it. Um, so companies have tremendous pricing power. If, if Listen, my job as an equity strategist is just to look at all this and say, you know, what do you do if you're, if you're a stock investor? What do you do if you're a general investor? And um, if companies have pricing power, that means that they're easily able to pass on these higher expenses onto customers. And, and that's what we're seeing. So, we're seeing in these uh, recent earnings reports that are coming out, companies are com complaining like crazy about input costs, and then they're delivering these incredible earnings numbers, mostly on higher margins because they're passing on um, expenses. Longer term, the you don't have a problem with higher commodity prices. They get passed on quite nicely. It's wage increases that are a problem because you know oil prices can go up and down, but wages can go up. And then they can go up again. They get they don't go down. So um, so <laughs> long term, they, that's the, it's the wage one that, that that could bite us. And and um, you know we can talk more we can talk more about that. So then, if we think about inflation, you you mentioned two several factors. So the supply chain bottlenecks, and then the extraordinary high demand, especially being pushed up by used car prices, airfare, and transportation costs. It seems like those are where the the pressures uh, for prices are, are really rising. Do you expect those to, to stay over the next year, 18 months, or, or will we continue to see those kind of flatten out? 
Yeah, you know, the, the word that's getting thrown around is, you know, transitory or temporary. And I think this is transitory or temporary. I, I don't think that we're going to be stuck with with higher inflation um, for the foreseeable future. The, the problem is, is I think that transitory might be, you know, 12 months or 15 months. And it, and it really comes down to um, the dislocation of, um, of turning things, you know, turning things off and trying to get them uh, back up and running. I mean, if anybody who's tried to order anything from, you know, an above ground swimming pool to lawn furniture to a car or try to renovate their kitchen or a million other things, there's just, there's just no ability um, for people to meet that, uh, for, to meet that demand. And, and what normally happens here, and this is what makes this environment so unusual, is that when you have a spike in demand, um, a company will increase their um, capacity. So think about this, you know, you have a shortage of lumber because everybody wants to go and, you know, uh, build a new house or, you know, or, or, you know, invest in their homes. And so what is it that normally you would get is you would have people who cut down trees, they would build a, a bigger l- lumber mill and that would turn those trees into two by fours and, and, and that would be a natural process. But, but what happens if the guy who owns that lumber mill believes this is transitory? First of all, it's that, that equipment's not going to show up for a year and then they have to kind of get it up and running. So they're not going to, they, they don't get an immediate response from, from adding that capacity. And that, that piece of equipment maybe lasts for 20 or 30 years. So if, if, we, if they believe that this spike in demand is temporary, they probably better off saying, hey, let me just, let me just sit tight. I'm getting, I'm getting higher pricing. I, I'm not making an excess business investment in here. This is temporary. A year from now, things will calm down. And let me take this as a windfall profit. And I think that that's what's happening. I think it's also one of the reasons um, we could talk a little bit more about wages and labor, but um, companies don't want to pay up for those employees because if this demand that we're seeing is is a, a temporary spike, they don't want to overpay for their labor because then they're going to be stuck with these higher labor rates for a longer period. So there's a very unusual situation where we're not getting additional supply in response to, to the demand that we're getting. So this thing is going to be uh, a bit uncomfortable for, uh, you know, for, for longer than we all want to believe it is, but it'll all work through over, you know, over surely in, in, in someone's investment horizon. Yeah. You know, as we kind of talk about this in the context of supply and, and this in particular case of demand issue, I mean, what's interesting is I feel like in this country, people complain about gas prices a lot, but and we remain one of the most affordable places for gasoline. Uh, however, we actually have seen, you know, multi-year crude prices um, recently. And on top of that, you have things where OPEC had a tough time making a deal, right? I mean, the United Arab Emirates bucked their request to cut oil production beyond April 2022. I think they might have hit somewhat of a deal today. Uh, but yeah, I mean, travels increased with vaccination rates. Uh, large parts of the globe are reopening. So, I mean, I guess what's all this spike of demand really going to mean for, you know, oil and gas prices, but of course, uh, in the large term, you know, energy stocks as well. You know, I'm a, I'm a believer for a variety of reasons that we're going to see um, higher oil prices for, for a bit, you know, for a bit longer or actually 
probably for you know for the foreseeable future. Um, first of all, in the near term, demand is is very high, and, and we forget that that oil is is not only used for um, you know for 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 jet fuel and for gasoline, but it's it's used in so many of the things that we use every day. If, if you pave a road, um, there's there's uh, this petroleum that, that's used in in that in that tar. If you if you build a house, the roofing has petroleum in it, and and the same thing with plastics and and other and chemicals and and the like. So it, this is a it's it's a commodity that's very sensitive to demand um, in in a really really um, broad way. Uh, but you know one of the things that's happening is you know and you talk about OPEC, which you know is very hard for someone like myself to be able to kind of. Uh, handicap how things are going to go there but if you think about companies that whether they be american oil companies or canadian oil companies or european oil companies there is a tremendous move towards clean energy sources so if i were an oil executive and um, i have an opportunity to have a very highly profitable project to drill a fracking well um, you know, whatever, Penn, Pennsylvania or, or the, you know, the Texas or wherever it is. Um, I, I, I see that the, the profits on that is really clear, but I also see shareholders who are telling me, like, listen, this is not where we want you to go. We want you to be focused on, you know, ESG. And, we, you know, we want you to be focused on doing the right thing by the environment. And, and we rather you um, take your extra investable dollar and invested in renewables or wind or, or or what have you and that means that there is a large incentive for those businesses to um, under invest in old energy technologies and to invest in things that are not going to be as productive immediately but will be productive over the long run and I, I think that when you have a transition from from one technology to another, you 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 get um, distortions in that pricing. And I'll give you maybe the best parallel to this is when um, you know over the last you know 30 years with 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 tobacco stocks, when when the government came in and said that you know these tobacco companies can't advertise and they 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 were going to make their you know more difficult. Um, to, to, to restrict their businesses, which is a great thing, right? It, it made Americans and people around the world healthier, but it also kept tobacco prices high because um, of, of those uh, restrictions. And, and it was very good for the big um, tobacco companies um, because they didn't have to worry about competition. They didn't have to worry about innovation and spending money on advertising and all of these kind of things. So um, I, I think that we could be very surprised. We might be surprised that this this period of transition away from energy could be very um, lucrative for energy companies because there is because there will be a uh, a, a, a tighter uh, a, a tighter environment for them. And one thing that you just mentioned there that is another hot topic is the sustainable investment strategies, really ESG. Uh, we've seen that a lot of ESG screened indexes beat their broad market equivalents during the second quarter uh, and last year performed very well, uh, great as well. Is this performance based on fundamental value or are we seeing uh, people hurting to these different types of stocks because they're what people are, are, are discussing these days? 
Yeah, we we listen. Credit Suisse, we've been doing like an enormous amount of work around uh, ESG, and and so the, the first, so let me kind of share some of our findings, and and just to give you a sense of how complicated some of these things are. The first question when you're thinking about what makes a good ESG company is you have to ask, do you want to think about things as in terms of a best in class approach versus um, you know a you know are these companies that are in the, the, the kind of product areas that are good or bad for the environment? So let me give you a specific example. Um, let's say you have an energy company. There are a lot of investors who say, listen, we just don't want to invest in energy. Energy is bad and we, we're not going there. And then there are other people who say, well, that, that, that's silly. I mean, we're, we're, all, we're still using oil and natural gas and, and the like. Um, let's find the best one. Let's find the ones that are doing the best things by the employees, the best things by the environment, that they're, they're investing for the future and they're trying to transition their business. And, the, and so you could look at two ESG funds. One of them says, we don't want any energy. And the other one says, no, we want what we think are the ones that are going to be the best. Um, and you get something very different. So the, it really depends on which indices you find or where you look at and, and so the ones where they kind of operate through exclusion you know we don't like chemicals companies we don't like energy companies we don't like you know companies that do certain things um those tend to be very cyclical and volatile because then their performance patterns are really driven by oh well okay maybe software is viewed as being good okay great if software is on is, is on its air well then esg looks brilliant but is it really the ESG or is it really software or is it really, you know, chemicals or something that, that's driving it? If, on the other hand, you say, I want the best companies within each niche. I want the best software companies. I want, I want the best um, auto companies. I want the, you know, and, and then you go niche by niche. You see the patterns look entirely different. Now, the work that we have done shows that roughly speaking over the last five years, ESG has added in the U.S. Uh, just shy of 4% a year. If you, if you bought the best performing companies and you, and you shorted the, 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 the worst, perform, worst, worst rated companies, if you will. Um, and in, in Europe, you get about 100 basis points better than, than that. So those are really terrific uh, numbers. But if you take a look at which of the characteristics um, drove that. Is it the E? Is it the S? Is it the G? It, it really is interesting. It's the social that's added by far the most value. In the U.S., for example, in the last five years, the E has been about flat. It hasn't added or it's attracted um, anything meaningfully, certain sectors more, certain sectors less. But the social has is, is been uh, more. And, and even within the social, it, a lot of those are things like are companies engaging their employees and educating them and investing in them? That's a huge value add to the companies that do the right thing by their employees do much, much better. Um, so it's that that's interesting. Companies that tend to not have product liability issues. Think about an auto company that has lots of recalls. I mean, that's a sustainable issue for the health of those companies. It may not be environmental. Um, and we find that those companies that, you know, have, you know, uh, better diligence on their own products and their safety and, and, and their own liabilities. Those, those are really, really important issues. So um, how you frame this conversation is just so, in, just so important. Uh, one of the things I've heard, and let, let me know if this is fake news or not, but um, there's a lot of chatter about whether standards have decreased amongst a lot of ESG indices. 
So that's included companies that might not otherwise have been included. Um, you know, what's what's your take on that? Yeah, I, so I, I, I have, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I've done less work looking at the indices because they're so different based on the way they're defined. And many of them use this kind of exclusion approach, which which we don't like or I don't like. And, and, and the reason is, is that what's the goal here? The goal is as investors, and I remember, you know, back a million years ago when I was over at Wharton in my very first finance class and the, and the you know, the professor said, we're doing something noble here. We allocate capital. And if we can allocate money to the best ideas, we can save lives and we can make people live longer and we can create a, a, a more just society. We can do all these wonderful things by allocating capital to the areas that the capital is going to get the the best returns. And, and I think that that's exactly the way that we should view ESG. Um, if we can allocate money within each niche to the best players, then what we're doing is we are, um, first of all, the, the one thing you're doing is if you say, I want to buy the top third and, and I want to short the bottom third, or I want to avoid the bottom third, you're, you're, um, you always have a situation where you're now saying to companies, you need to compete each, with each other to do the right thing. You need to be competing with each other to make sure that you're, that you have the best policies around your, your employees and the environment and, 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 and the like. So there is no, then if you're, if you're rank ordering them, then there, then there is no easing of standards. You're always fighting um, against your competition to be better. And the market ultimately then determines the winners and losers. So um, it's possible that you're right with respect to the benchmark that there's, you know, that, that, that there's some loosening or something, I don't know. But when you look at it in a more rigorous way, and when I talk to the biggest financial institutions, and, you know, you, you know their names. These are the biggest pension plans in the world, the biggest um, mutual fund companies in the world. Um, they're looking at it largely on a let's find best in class. Um, they're not, they're not, some might be, but most of them, are not looking to just simply exclude. They're looking to differentiate. So my way of thinking about this is what the big institutions do. Retail investors, on the other hand, are more likely just to say, no, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with, you know, a company who produced, you know, uh, let's say an aerospace company because they may also sell, sell planes to the Defense Department or something. And that, that's, it, it, that's just not the way the big institutions tend to behave. Well, to change gears on you here, and the, and the last question from me, you, you mentioned it before, and it seems to be a topic that's threaded throughout is the labor market, uh, especially we've seen non-farm payrolls be to estimates in June, but the last several months, there seems to be a labor supply issues. A lot of discussions for the reasons why could be the joblessness benefits, child care, also just lingering fears of the pandemic with the Delta variant out there. Which of these do you think has the biggest factor on the current job market? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it, first, first, first of all, it, it's really hard for anybody to fully explain why we have um, so many unfilled jobs um, when there are people who are unemployed and, um, and clearly, if you look at the states that have um, 
been less generous in their um, payments to the unemployed or that they've not passed on these federal um, benefits, they, they've done better. So there's no, there's no question about it that, that some portion of this is the fact that you're giving incentives to people to, to stay at home. But it's not, it's definitely not like the whole story. It's a part of the story. Um, Childcare is a really big deal. If your schools are not open, somebody is, you know, is at home taking care of Johnny or Sally, and that's a problem. And the summer is, is, is not a really great transition time because kids are, are more naturally home, at home. And, and that's a bigger issue for people who are lower income who can't afford to send their kids to summer camp or, or what have you. So um, I think that we're going to see a really big improvement in September when more of the benefits roll off and when kids are back at school. And I think that that's going to help a lot, but I don't think it's going to be entirely the whole story. I think this Delta variant um, thing, I think, has some people uh, um, uncomfortable. I, I don't know um, how that's going to how much it's actually stopping people from uh, from from heading to to work? I would assume that that's relatively uh, modest. And I do think this issue I mentioned before that companies um, are are somewhat reluctant to pay these wages because they know that they're sticky. They you know oil prices are up, and you mentioned before, but they you know but they recently come down a tiny bit. You know, or some of the other commodities have gone up and they've rolled over. Lumber prices went through the roof and they rolled over. They can go up and down. Wages can't do that. And so companies are being a little bit more patient and letting things kind of play through a little bit. And that it's not a disaster, but it means that it's just going to take a little bit longer. But, you know, we have about a 6% unemployment rate. We will probably over the next two years that that'll be back to something like three and a half percent or four percent and um so while the transition period is is very uncomfortable um the you know the the progress we're making is still very very um admirable and and we're doing a lot better than in the u.s and lots of other places around the world so the the economy here is in is in, in very in very good shape. We've, we've added a lot more stimulus to the system to keep things moving along um, compared to other countries. Yeah, I mean, and I, I agree. I, I guess one of the things that surprises me the most is how much wage inflation inflation we're seeing relative uh, when, as you mentioned, we're sitting at about six point percent unemployment, whereas you know, in standard times, whether it's three or, or four, um, you know, wages have been we're stagnant in that, which which almost seems to, you know, go against our basic understandings of economics. Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. You would you would think that when you have a tight labor market where there's only three and a half percent of people who are unemployed, that's when wages are going through the roof, and a six percent when you have a lot of slack, that's when when nobody's getting a raise. But um, like I said, it, it just the, the there is there is no analogy for the period that we're in, in, you know, in the post, you know, in the post-World War II or post-Great Depression uh, period, you know, which is, is now about 100 years ago. So we, there's just, there's no way of looking and saying, ah, this looks just like that. Let's, let's, let's see what happened that last time. There, there is no, there is no last time to model this after. And the disruptions are, are really hard. So anybody who, you know, this is, you know, what, you know, I, I was recently on, 
uh, you know, CNBC, actually, it was one of the other networks, but uh, it doesn't matter. It was on one, I was on financial TV, and, and I was with another strategist, and they were talking about how their model said that you know, now is exactly the right time to be moving from value to growth. And I'm like, with all due respect, like, <laughs> your models must be better than everyone's else because, like, nobody's models are working well. And you, you, the Fed, do you think the Fed expected the interest rates to fall from almost one eight to one two? And, you know, it, it, as during the, during the heat, you know, I, I just mentioned that this is the hottest, you know, quarter economically since 1952. And you think they would would have expected a collapse in interest rates? I mean, and it's and it's not like I'm blaming the Fed. It's just it's, it's just nobody's models can pick up supply disruption. It's not anybody's model. So um, I think that I, I think the environment is a healthy one. I think that the economy is growing. I think it's going to renormalize, which means it's going to slow down from these levels. We're going to get the unemployment down, and stocks will do well in this environment. But it's going to it's going to be uncomfortable. Oh, great, Jonathan. Uh, thanks again, as always, for your time today. Um, like to thank all of our listeners for tuning into this first episode of season five. And we'll uh, talk to you all guys all next week. Um, thanks again. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the contents. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.